Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. You've got a handout right there. Uh, Genesis chapter 49. We're going to talk about the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan. And uh, as always, go online. If you miss the others, they'll be online uh, shortly. But tribe of Dan. We're going to talk about the judge and the serpent. And Genesis chapter 49 is Jacob's prophecy of this son. And I'm just going to tell you, in Genesis chapter 30, a few chapters back, Bilhah, which would be Rachel's maid, would give the fifth son. Now remember, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, who were sisters, bickered and fought, and at different times in their life they could not bear children. So they had surrogate wives, which is kind of a common, but not too common, but a common practice back then. But you think about uh, Hagar with Abraham, remember that story? It seems to always not work out real well, but anyhow, they seemed to do it. He didn't learn from his, his grandfather. But uh, Bilhah would be Rachel's maid, and because Rachel could not have a son, she gave him Bilhah as a surrogate, and she bore him Dan. And she said, in Genesis 30, it says that she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. That word vindication became his name. Dan, God has vindicated or God has judged me. And so Dan's name means judge. And we'll go on, and uh, he'll be the fifth son of uh, Jacob, but the first son of Bilhah. And uh, let me give you the details about his tribe just briefly. Number one is that his symbol will become a snake or the scales of justice on the breastplate. It would be known as a, uh, the stone of topaz on the priest's breastplate, or really, we don't really know the color. It kind of would be unknown, but his symbol would be the snake. Uh, and he, like I said, his family is the fifth son of Jacob. So I don't hear anything much about Dan other than he's one of those ones that sells his brother, Joseph, into slavery along with all the others. And uh, let me get to this slide there. There, there we go. Uh, and so his prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob's on his deathbed. He begins to give to all 12 sons uh, the prophecy. And it says this, Genesis 49, verse 16. Dan shall judge, or really, it's Dan shall Dan, right? Dan shall Dan, or judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, and an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall off backwards. And then kind of switches here, and it says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. This is a very weird verse. Very weird prophecy. I mean, I don't know how I would take that as a son. And we don't know the personality of Dan, but after we get done with this lesson, I'm sure you could guess what his real personality was like. But, son, you're going to be like a snake who bites people when they ride by on their horses. Oh, Lord, I pray for salvation. <laughs> it's like, what are you saying, Dad? You know, what are you, what are you telling me? But this is the prophecy. The first part of it, you can kind of look at it and say, well, it says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And one of the commentators said, well, maybe perhaps Dan, because he's the first son of, you might say, an illegitimate wife, the maid, he might be securing the line here that Dan is going to be one of the 12 tribes, equal among his brothers. No doubt, as Dan was growing uh, up, he 
he might have had some of those issues. You're just the maid's son. I'm the real son. I'm Leah's son. I'm Rachel's son later on. But you're just the maid's son. And so Jacob prophesies, says, no, Dan will judge among his other brothers. He'll be one of the tribes. But then he prophesies something not so nice, perhaps. He's going to be like a snake, like a viper, who's biting the heels of the horse so that his rider falls off backwards. And then Jacob says this prayer, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. So we're going to dig into this. Uh, one, one commentator I've followed a lot on these studies, um, uh, he says there's three things he can, you can pull out of this uh, passage. Is that there are three things. Number one is a famous person, a familiar problem, and where am I at? A familiar problem and a fervent prayer. A famous person, a familiar problem, and a fervent prayer. A guy by the name of Varner did a great study on these 12 tribes and been using him a lot lately, reading his work. But anyway, so this, let's, let's kind of look at that because it kind of goes with that statement for a minute. Um, a familiar problem, a famous person, a fervent prayer. And so look with me at Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Okay, so he prophesies over his son. Now, remember, all the boys grow up. They go to Egypt with their father uh, after Joseph uh, redeems the family. And they go down to Egypt. They grow, they grow, they grow. They become a bunch of tribes in Egypt. But a new pharaoh comes on the scene, doesn't know who they are. And all these tribes come into slavery until the day that someone says, let my people go, which is who? Moses, okay, I'm just making sure you're with me. Moses comes because God tells him to go and uh, becomes the Exodus. And so all the 12 tribes, one of the tribes was Dan, comes out with Moses. And they go through the wilderness and have all those fun journeys of quail and manna and battles and all kinds of stuff. And they get to the end of their journeys, wandering for 40 years because of their disobedience. And Moses, before he dies, prophesies over almost every tribe. And here's what he says about Dan as they're about to uh, get to that timing of going into the wilderness, or going into the promised land. It says, Deuteronomy 32, verse 22 says, Dan is a lion's cub springing out of Bashan. Okay, so I've got two weird prophecies here. We kind of hard to understand what they mean. Here we have on one side, we've got Jacob prophesying over his son, saying, you're going to be like a snake who bites the horse and guys fall off. And then Moses says to this tribe... He says, you're going to be like this lion's cub that springs out of this place. Okay, well, there's two things that we can get out of that. Number one, where is this place? Bashan is an area known as the Golan Heights. Uh, Beth and I got the opportunity to go there uh, a while back. And the Golan Heights are this northern uh, part across the Jordan River uh, from uh, Israel, okay, so it's not on this map, but it's the far right part. And Bashan was an area there that was known for being very fertile. In fact, they had these big bulls that they were known for. And, and it was, you know, it was a pagan land at that time, but it was fertile, it was rich. And later on, this area would be so well known for its fertility, its uh, prosperity, for its large livestock and its produce that it would almost be synonymous with materialism, uh, with pride, and with the fallen mankind, okay? So it would be known as a symbol of human prosperity, but also 
human pride. Isaiah talks about it in the sense of human pride in Isaiah 2. And so here's this place, and Moses is saying, you're going to be like a lion's cub coming from this prideful place of human prosperity. And who is the other lion that we've talked about so far in here? The lion in the tribe of Judah. Well, in Judah's sense, it's a very positive thing. But here we find this lion's cub, and the way he talks about it is almost in a bad way. It's that young, pouncing, vigorous, mean sense that it is coming to surprise its enemy out of the place of a foreign land in the northern part of Israel that is known for prosperity but also pride. And so here we find there is going to be an evil sense about you that you will overtake other people from the place of human prosperity or pride. But there's also this location we're going to talk about here in a second. And now pair that with Jacob's prophecy of a serpent. What do we know about the serpent? What does it symbolize often in Scripture is what? The devil, right? Uh, it's never be good to be called a snake in the Bible. We don't want to ever... That, what did Jesus say about the Pharisees? You are a brood or a den of vipers, right? Uh, and we get that, that Satan, in this satanic imagery, is already rising up in the tribe of Dan, even though we haven't really seen Dan do anything yet. Isn't that how the devil kind of works, though? It's that seed there. There's the, the Bible is already... These men of God have already prophesied things that are about to happen through this tribe, even though we haven't seen it yet, but the Word of God has already done it. And I'm going to say this preemptively about what we're going to talk about. There are things in the Bible that are called prophetic, which tell of things in a later day that when you look back, you can say, oh, we should have known that, or we can see that now. We didn't understand it then, but now we really do understand it. And God was warning us, and God does that with prophecies sometimes. He gives you that nugget that you may not understand fully now, but when the time comes, things will be revealed. And there's many things like that even in the New Testament for us as believers that we might not fully understand, but we should know and be ready for the day when it fully comes to be revealed. The Bible tells us that mysteries will be revealed to God's elect in these last days, all right? Okay, so here we have these two prophecies to hold on to Dan. Let's talk about Dan. Look with me in Judges chapter 12. There's a famous person who comes out of the tribe of Dan. You might know him as kind of the incredible hulk of the Bible. Anybody got a clue who I'm talking about? Samson. Samson is a Danite, okay? He was the famous person, and he is the one that we would get the word, uh, how this prophecy would be fulfilled. It says, Dan shall judge his brothers as a tribe. Well, what did Samson become? He was a judge. In a day when everyone was doing right in their own eyes, God would raise up men who were of faith, who had a call in their life uh, in the tribe because there was no king, and they would set order. They would normally fight the enemy, uh, come against the things and bring order and, and start not even just fighting, but handle the caseload of when we don't understand what to do, what is right, what is wrong, and people would come to them like Deborah and Samson and different uh, men and women, Gideon, for wisdom. And so Samson in Judges 12, 2, was born of the tribe of Dan. He became a judge, and you can look through Judges 13 through 16. But Samson, he's a strong man. He becomes famous for non-traditional warfare. Uh, and you can figure out, man, here's what one man of God can do against the mighty enemy. And we, that enemy would be known as the Philistines. 
Now let me tell you something. But when Joshua began to give the land out, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it fits right here, is that when Moses would give the prophecy, Moses would die. Joshua, by a lot of the Holy Spirit, would give out the tribal land, okay? Remember, we get Judah and all these guys get their land. Well, Dan happens to be last on the list by the Holy Spirit's choosing. And when he gives the land to Dan, he gives him this green spot over here on the, on the far left. I don't know if you can see on the map, but it's just to the left of the tribe of Benjamin and just to the north of a place we call today the Gaza Strip. How many people have heard the Gaza Strip and all the problems we have on the news, right? It's the land of the Philistines. They would give them the land just north of the Philistines. It'd be a small land, but it's on the coast. It's just north of the Philistines. And their job was to win against the Philistines, drive out the Philistines, and take the land. Okay, so they kind of had a charge there. But they had Judah as a brother to help them on the uh, south uh, southern portion of them. So Judah's on one side of the land of the Philistines. Dan is on the other. Well, Dan doesn't drive out the Philistines. In fact, they, they fail horribly at it, and their land is always under attack by the Philistines. They become a people who is oppressed because they don't have victory in their life. You see a preaching message in that point. They don't have victory through the calling of God that they have been called to do. Go take the land. They fail. They don't call on Judah, their brother, the roaring lion, the Savior tribe, right? To gain victory. And so they come under oppression of the enemy. So God raises up a man named Samson who becomes their judge. But you know Samson and his story, he's, a, he's not a man above reproach. Samson, uh, when he trusts the Lord, he does good and he succeeds. But when he trusts in his own strength, he gets himself in all kinds of a web of uh, tangled lies and, and all kinds of things. Uh, he comes repeatedly under compromise. He begins to fall repeatedly to the lusts of the flesh, to the lusts of the eyes, to the pride of life. Remember the uh, verse in 1 John, that those three sins really complete all the sins in the garden. They are the sins that Jesus was tempted with by the devil. And those are the same sins that bring down the man of God from Dan. And so Samson ends up, uh, he has a Nazarite call in his life, and he's not able to drink wine, but we find him hiding in the garden and getting attacked by a lion, and so he was in the vineyard. We find him not able to eat anything dead, but, or touch anything dead, but we find him taking the pleasure of honey from a carcass of a dead animal. So he, for the pleasure of honey, he takes the carcass, or touches the carcass. We find him not supposed to marry any pagan women, but what does he do? He not only marries one, but he loses her and goes to multiple other pagan women, finally finding the worst one that he shouldn't have had all, all along. And what does she do? She does the last thing that he wasn't supposed to do, which was cut his hair. And so when he finally... Uh, it wasn't really that his hair was his strength, per se. is that he had neglected the call of God on his life, and he was not obedient to the Word of God. And for that reason, the Holy Spirit left him because of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so he falls away. But you know the story is... Really good because God's a merciful God and at the very end of his life he repents and comes back to faith and God gives him victory. But there's still a moral of the story that in the tribe of Dan there is this sense of compromise and a failure to stand up in the Word of God. So even though 
all that happened, here's the good news, is that Sam, Samson became a, a hero of faith in Hebrews 11. So there's their famous person. So Dan has a judge. Well, there's that prophecy fulfilled. Dan shall judge among his brothers. Dan becomes a judge. Isn't that cool how prophecy is fulfilled later on? All right, so what about the famous problem or the familiar problem? It says that uh, Jacob would say, he bites the horse's heels. Okay, so I tell you now about the famous person. Here's the familiar problem we can all relate with in these days. Dan gets this small territory, comes under oppression from the enemy because they don't trust in the Word of God. They don't fulfill the promise. They don't take the land God has given them. They become oppressed. They fall into this state of uh, constant oppression. And here's this apostasy that's predicted. You'll be like a serpent. So just like Samson, Dan's having all these problems with idolatry. And so we just talked about the serpents listed through Scripture as a sign of Satan. And so let's talk about that satanic influence. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10. I'm just going to paraphrase it. But Leviticus 24, verse 10, just so you can keep up with me. We have the first blasphemy from this tribe. It records this woman of Dan, and she marries an Egyptian, and then she has a son. So what was one of the big things you're not supposed to do as an Israelite? You're not supposed to marry outside of the children of Israel. And uh, really, you're supposed to marry in your own tribe, but you're definitely not supposed to marry a pagan person. So this woman already has compromise in Leviticus. Like, Moses has just given the law here. I mean, come on. You just saw fire fall down from heaven on the mountain, and, you know, you're not even there yet. But here we find Dan already in problems. So what happens? She marries a pagan. And remember what Paul says, what, what does light have to do with darkness? What does uh, children of God have to do with children of ba- uh, the Baal or the, or the devil? And so her son fights with another man. Remember, the, the kid's got a, a, a faithful mom or you know, a children of God mom and a pagan dad. He gets into a fight, I don't know, at school or at the bar or somewhere. He gets in a fight, and in the middle of the fight, I don't know if people are breaking it up, he starts cussing out the other dude. And in the middle of cussing him out, he cusses God. He takes the Lord's name in vain like so many people do today, all even on national TV and the news. But he curses God out. So what does God do? I'm going to make an example of him. They take him outside the camp. They stone him. And this becomes the example of what happens when you compromise and you go against or you curse the Word of God, death. There's a prediction here for Dan. You see this seed sowing. So there's the consequences of compromise. Think about that in our families even today. The consequences of compromise. That's why we tell our children, don't date non-Christians. Don't marry non-Christians. If you're in that relationship now, Paul says stay in that relationship by any means, hopefully that unbelieving spouse will be saved because of your faith and God will, uh, because of your love and compassion and faithfulness, will turn to Christ. Uh, but he's very clear. We don't marry or date or form any legal bonds. We shouldn't be any serious uh, commitments uh, with the unbelievers because we know they don't have faith. We have light. They have darkness. They will turn on you. It will not work out. You can't be unequally yoked. Right? 
Yoking means two oxes are a team. They have to both pull together at the same time. It don't work when one ox wants to go one way and one wants to go the other. That relationship will fail. Here we have it again. And what's the result of that unequally yoke? Blasphemy and death. Think about that. I don't have time to preach the 20 messages I have tonight, okay? All right, so go on to Judges 18, verse 3. So we got first blasphemy. Number two, we have leaving the promise. Judges 18, verse 3. In Judges, again, a day when everybody's doing right in their own eyes, the day Samson and them were living, Dan grows weary. They're under oppression, all right? They're in this small territory just north of the Philistines. So what do they do? I'm not happy living where God has me. You see the problem here? I'm under oppression, Lord. You told me to go here. Maybe I didn't put in the work, but that's not the point. The point is, I'm not happy, and things aren't going my way right now, so I'm going to go look for a better way. Does that sound familiar in the world today? Right? So what does Dan do? Dan sends out some spies, some five military scouts or troops... They begin to search other parts of their brother's land, the promised land. They send them out across the other places. Let me see how this believer is living. Let me see what their territory is like. They've conquered those cities. Let me see what they have to offer. And uh, maybe his wife looks better than my wife. Maybe their job looks better than my job. Maybe their fortune looks better than my fortune. I'm not happy where I am. My blessing hasn't come yet. See where I'm going with this? And they, they begin to look because they're under oppression. They haven't had victory from the enemy. They haven't trusted in God. So they begin to look elsewhere, turn to other ways. This is where God had them to go. God's words said, go here. Holy Spirit said, go here. Yeah, but God, I don't have victory there. Well, you didn't trust me. You didn't wait on me. You didn't rely on me. You didn't call on Judah. Here we go. Well, we're going to go find other places, God. So they begin to go. They look for a better location. So they travel to the very, very northern part of the country to Mount Hermon, which is near Lebanon, which is the very northern part of modern-day Israel, the very tip-top. If you see the Dead Sea and you go straight up, that's the uh, River Jordan. Then you see that other dot, that's the Sea of Galilee. Go straight up where the Jordan forms, where all the rain from Mount Hermon It comes down, the snow is melted, and at the very base of the Jordan River, which is one of the most lush, fertile places, that's where they find a little town named Laish in Judges 18.7. And they say, this is easy to conquer. There's some people here, some Sidonians, they're they're there, there's a little town, a little quaint little village, a little quiet little village on the corner of a side of a mountain. And so 600 soldiers then come headed for this little town. But on the way, they stop at a house of a guy named Micah. All right? Judges 18, verse 3. I'm just going to read this. When they were near the house of Micah... Now, again, this is a day of paganism and idolatry across all of Israel, right? A day when there is no king. They've forgotten the law. They've forgotten Moses' words. The whole... Most of the nation is in apostasy. All right? When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young man. It was a Levite. Now, Levite, remember who they were. They were there to carry the word of God. And they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here to this man's house? 
What are you doing in this place? What do you have to do here? And he said to them, the Levite said, but this is what Micah has done to me. He has hired me, and I've become his priests. That should have tipped you off right there. This guy is supposed to be serving the house to the Lord, the temple, the, the place of God, the tabernacle in Shiloh, actually, at this time. He's supposed to be a man leading people to God, but now he's been a priest for hire. Some man named Micah, has set up an image in his own house and said, hey, I'm a rich man. I can afford nice things. Why don't you come be the priest I want you to be? Remember the verse in the, in the New Testament says, in the last days they will have, what, itching ears and accumulate teachers that will teach whatever they want to be taught, right? And so here's this Levite who's become a pastor for hire. He preaches what men want to be said. And he comes and he's his personal priest. And so he hires me out, and he said to him, uh, why, why don't you, you're a good pastor, you're apparently, you're good enough that this rich man hires you, the rich man likes you. Let's see, is God going to be for us in our new adventure of finding our own way? Are you hearing a modern message here today? I want to find my own way, not the ancient way that God has told us, but I really want to find my own way of prosperity, of ease, where I have peace, without fighting for victory and trusting in God's Word. And so he says, you know what? Let me inquire of God. And the priest says to them, you know what? Go in peace. Your way which you are going has the Lord's approval. Talk about false prophet. So here's what happens. They persuade this Levite. Well, if you work for him, why don't you come work for us? And he joins them, and you know what he does? He steals the idol in his own master's house, steals it, takes it. They have to really ward off the master from chasing them, and when they find out he can't overtake them. So this weak-minded tribe takes this weakened, idol-worshipping man's idol, and they go. And the army takes down this town of Laish, and they rename it Dan. And they set up a carved image there, They choose new priests from a family of a man named Jonathan to lead them. And from that moment, Dan becomes the center of idolatrous worship in the northern part of Israel. Now, there's so many stories we could go tangent on sermon illustrations that would go for today of what happens when we think our way is better than God's way. We leave the ancient... Actually, Jeremiah says, return to the ancient paths and find the way. That modernization, we turn away from the ancient things. We turn from our our God's way into our own way. We don't want to fight the battles trusting in Christ and follow the Lord into prosperity, even if it means going through selflessness and victory and taking up our cross and denying ourselves and follow Him. We want no fight. We just want peace and pleasure and prosperity. So we leave the the promise... They left the promise of God to find their own way. They accumulated teachers to teach what they want to be taught, hired men, hired priests, hired pastors, and they went and took another land. They go to the northern place, and to the very top, the very northern city on this map is Dan. It's at the center of the stream of living water, a false idol a false gospel, a false teaching. Remember in Moses' prophecy? 
He says, you'll spring up like a young cub in a place. What did he say that place his name was? He said it was Bashan. There's some name issues here, but Bashan is near the place of Laish. It is in this place of the Golan Heights. Probably God was prophesying through Moses that says, you are going to be like this ferocious lion's cub who will leave the place. Because what business did Dan have to do in Baish or, um, Baish or Laish, which is at the top part, the northern part of Israel? Dan, your part is down here in the southern uh, southwest port. Why was Moses prophesying about you being in the north? God knew. They would leave the place of promise and like a vicious lion kill, they would kill this entire village, women and children and men, burn it to the ground, rebuild it from the ashes, start their new way. Everybody wants a new way. New way to find peace, new way to find hope, new way to find victory. Start a new way at the center of what could, should be the living water, the springs of life. Set up their own idolatrous worship. And from that moment, you would see just havoc reeking through the tribes of Israel. And let's go on and look at that a little bit. Jeroboam's rebellion, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. There's so many prophetic things. We don't have, I could spend a whole semester on just this lesson, how it relates to even the American dream and the American church today uh, and the fall of the modern church. Because this is what we've done. And so I'm going to allow the Lord just to take this home with you and you, you study it out of what it means to find hired men of God, itching ears, to the fact that they were living in defeat. And because living in defeat for so long and not trusting in Christ for victory led them to leave the gospel and find a new teaching and a new way of finding peace and hope. Uh, And in doing so, they hurt many people in the process, but they didn't care. They wanted what they wanted. Uh, And that's kind of how you see many in the church today. But here we have 200 years later, Jeroboam will split the kingdom. The church, the house of God, the kingdom of God will be split. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. Solomon's son will keep the southern kingdom, even though he wasn't a great guy. In fact, it was because his father did some not nice things that caused that problem in his own life. But Jeroboam takes the tribes to the north. And what he does is he sets himself up as king. Not only that, so think about that as we talk about Antichrist worship. He sets his own self up as king, leaving the line of the tribe of Judah, sets himself up as king in the northern tribes, and he sets up two places of worship. One is at Bethel. How many people remember the story of Bethel? There's a story about a ladder. Remember this? A man named Jacob. Who's Jacob? The father of all these guys. Think about it. And Bethel is where means house of God. In the house of God where Jacob saw the kingdom of God descending down in the house of God. That's the name of the place. Abraham had an altar there. Jacob, their father, had an altar there. Jeroboam, in the house of God, sets up an idol. What does the Bible say that the Antichrist is going to do in the last days? He's going to set up in the house or the temple a graven image or an idol, uh, and that probably is spiritual because right now we don't have a, a temple. Some people think there'll be a third temple built. I think we are the temple right now. I think setting up a, an idol in the temple would be to corrupt the modern church. 
to set up idolatry or an idolatrous worship in the modern church. I'm not looking for a building anymore. We're the temple, all right? That's what Jesus said anyway. So in the house of God, he sets up a golden calf, and then he goes to another city. Anybody guess where that city is? Dan. Because idolatry is already strong there. And so he goes in the northernmost part, in the highest peak. Dan is at the top of, the the elevation there is very high. Uh, And he sets up an idol there. He makes two golden calf. He says, you know what? It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold, here are your gods, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but these gods, these self-made, man-made gods, who I'm setting up in the house of God and in the place of Dan, you don't need to travel. I'm prohibiting you from going to the, the, the temple in Judah. I'm prohibiting you from going to Judah into the real lineage of God and worshiping there. You can't go any further. You must do this false worship. What does the Bible say the Antichrist is going to prevent us from doing? Buying and selling and doing all sorts of things, trying to hurt us in economic status to make us worship his way in a false way. So here we have this Antichrist worship. Um, That's how the enemy divides God's people. He'll set up alternate worship. And we know here, look how idolatry has continued through the generations. Note the seeds of sin here. Seeds in one generation who set up idolatry in Dan continued to, even 200 years later, even exploding more. And you can think about how seeds will grow into trees, right? And what we do and allow to pass in this generation with our teenagers, it will affect the church two, three, four, five generations from now. And so here's my plea as a pastor. Those who have parents or young people or who are working or should or could be working with our kids and our youth, We are at a crossroads in the modern American church to reach a generation of middle schoolers and teenagers for Jesus Christ. We're only a few elections away from there being serious talks about taxing the church and monitoring pastor sermons and all that. You think it's far off. It is here at the door. It's already happened in Houston. It's already happened in Atlanta. And I'm not preaching a doomsday, prophetic, all of that that some people think is crazy. This is real life right here, right now. We're here. And this is what happened then. They allowed things to happen in Dan that later became full-blown, king-centered, approved by the king, approved by those in authority. Now you must worship this way. And because of all of this, you'll see in Joshua just the prophetic that God would already have put on this tribe. Dan, because of their root of idolatry, they would always de- they had decreased in number as a tribe. God had already put them at the rear guard of the temple when they were moving through the wilderness. That should have been assigned to uh, Dan was on the west side of the temple, where Judah's on the east side, where the presence of God, to enter the presence of God, where the gate to get in, the door, the narrow way, the one way, that's Judah. On the opposite here is Dan. And so we find all of these things, uh, that, that line right there, that one's different. But we find Dan over here, left this place, gone the way of idolatry. Dan's omitted from the tribal genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And some people 
Uh, or actually, if you look in Revelation chapter 7, there's only one tribe not mentioned in Revelation out of the 12 tribes. You know what tribe it is? Dan. Dan's not mentioned in Revelation out of the 144,000 sealed Jews in the tribulation. I think about, from Dan, I think about Revelation 3, the prophecy that Jesus gave Sardis, that one of the churches, symbolic of a church in the last days, it says, uh, Remember what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. Dan should have remembered the promise that God had. I'll prosper you, go where I sent you, be who I've called you to be. But it says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come to you. He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father, before his angels. Jesus notes to them and saying, if you do not remember what I told you in my word and repent, I will blot out your name from the place in my kingdom. And that's symbolic of Dan. If, if I was to say of the twelve apostles, which one would represent the tribe of Dan, I for sure would say Judas. Now, we don't know which tribe all of the apostles are from. Some are speculated. But we know not all of them probably were from all twelve tribes. Here we go. Um, but Judas typifies the spirit of Dan. And let me give you this last point on the fervent prayer. And I want to talk about some modern stuff here. We only have a few minutes left. So in all of this, what did, Mo, what did Jacob pray? He, he prophesied this serpent, you're going to bite the horse's uh, heels and throw a rider off. That's kind of what Dan has done. It, it, it was this evil plot to take over a town. And, and we have constant rebellion. And it was almost like, let's do one small thing that causes a greater evil. You know, Satan does things slowly. He'll start one Supreme Court ruling or one few, you know, bills in the House or in the Senate. Small things here at the state level. They'll become small things. That biting of the horse's heel will cause the whole rider to fall off. It won't... You won't think that that one event would do all of this, but it's like this one thing causes a chain reaction. And the devil loves to allow small compromises in our faith and in our lackadaisical attitude to let go of the things of God, let go of the Word of God, compromise, maybe look for better things elsewhere, forget where we've come from, what he's called us to, and then, boom, before you know it, another generation rises up and things have gone down and down and down. But Jacob says, I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. In the prophecy of all of this evil, in Jacob's prophecy, he says, I am waiting for your salvation, O Lord. Who do you think he's prophesying? There's a man who, a God-man came and he happened to have a name. You know what his name was? Jesus. You know what Jesus means? Savior. I am waiting for your salvation, your Savior, Oh, Lord. I think Jacob in this passage was prophesying, just as we see in the garden, there was a snake that bruised the heel, right? But he says, but then there's going to come a man who's going to crush the head. And we find that to be Christ, that even though we would be bruised and Jesus would take on our bruising, our defeats, our all of our things, but then on the cross, He would crush the head. 
He would have victory over death. And in this one passage, you see that as well. Jesus, uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel or crush him on the heel. And so here we find victory over Christ. In all of the things of Dan, Dan was not only given a chance of salvation like the whole world would be, but this becomes the first of 78 occurrences of salvation in the Old Testament. The, the first time that salvation, this word salvation, for the Savior coming would be prophesied. And Jacob, I think he's praying for Dan in advance to the Holy Spirit, but not only just for Dan, but for all of God's children that the Messiah would come. And uh, Isaiah 49, 6 says, that, Is it a too small thing that you should be my servant, my Savior, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That God was predicting in Matthew one twenty one that a Savior was going to be born. And that's our hope in these last days. As things get darker and darker and darker, and idol worship has come up, and people are uh, turning away from the things of God, that I am waiting for your salvation, O God. There is one who is greater, and there is a lion cub who is there to destroy and come out of the place of man's prosperity and man's way of doing things. And he might be a lion's cub jumping out of Bashan from a place of self-made worship and self-made prosperity and human pride. That's where the Antichrist is going to come from. But there might be a lion's cub, but I know the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there is salvation in him. He's, he's not just this roaring lion just trying to scare people and pounce out of, of fear and timidity. But man, there is one who is greater. And Jacob, I think, in the midst of all this serpent talk, he sees, man, there is a Savior coming. And let me talk just briefly. I've left it three verses here. in John, 1 John 2.15 and 1 Peter 4.3 and Colossians 3.5. I encourage you to read those passages. We don't have time tonight to go into it. But John prophesies about this Antichrist spirit that is already in the world, but will continue to be in the world, and that is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says there's even some come from within us, but they really were not of us, like Dan. They were one of us, but they, he really wasn't one of us. There are those Judases in the church today who Satan has sent as ambassadors to bring down small churches and big churches and the national church. There are false prophets, false teachers. In the New Testament, we hear constant warning of false teachers. There are some pastors I get so tired of, of our own Christians who I know sharing words by famous popular pastors who I know don't preach the full gospel. And I hope you know the truth from the lie. Because it's not in prosperity gospel, it's not in hyper-grace gospel, it's the repentance, remission of sin, have full faith in Jesus Christ, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow Him. That's the gospel. That pastor's not preaching that, you better find yourself another pastor because he's a hired hand of Micah. And so, that's the Antichrist spirit. He says, you've got the Holy One, the anointing of God is on you, you should know the truth and you should know the liar. That's what 1 John 2 tells you. And that's the Antichrist spirit. Idolatry, Colossians 3, 5, says that we should be dead to those things of our old flesh because we know the wrath of God, death, like Dan, is coming upon uh, the sons of disobedience. And it says, but put all this thing aside and put on a new self who knows God. And then we know 1 Peter 4 says, 
Dan might have been the so-called judge, and man is going to judge this world for a short period, but there is a righteous judge who will judge the living and the dead. And you won't escape His judgment. And His judgment is right and is true. And I don't care what man sets himself up as in this world, there is coming a day where every knee will bow, every tongue confess who God really is. And that's in Jesus Christ. Amen? It says, don't fall into these things. Be ready to give an account, not to the judges of this world, Dan, but to the real judge. That's who we're looking for. And, and just we have five minutes. And uh, uh, I, this last few weeks has kind of been uh, just a, a wake-up call reminder uh, from where we are living in this last. Actually, last night we had a meeting with our leadership team. I shared a few things that, that God had been working on me with and just coming out of things of the world, leaving things of the world and fasting things of this life. I've uh, been reminded of some uh, just to be awake. I guess is the easiest way to say it. Just to be awake and aware of the day and hour which we live. I think the American church is a sleeping giant. That, that we don't even know the power. Like Samson, we've been wooed by Delilah. And our hair is about to be cut off. That so many saints are just being wooed into luxury and materialism and idolatry. We're allowing all kinds of idols in our homes. Uh, lust-filled TV. Uh, all kinds of things on our phones and our, our entertainment. We're so... And, you know, I, I told our, our staff the other day, um, when Jesus was most weak and He was most uh, uh, busy and most tired, He did not go home and put on sweatpants and turn on the TV for another episode of reality TV. He went and got alone with God to pray because He thought prayer and touching the presence of God was more valuable than sleep. Even when he was most tired, he was so hungry for the presence of God. This is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh walking on the earth. And if he could turn off the TV, put down the phone, if he could get alone, and he said, I, the Son of God, need to be in communion with my Father more than sleep. Yeah, we turn the TV on, we turn Facebook on, we chat for hours, we watch the, we, you know, veg out on Netflix for a few days, and we scroll on Facebook for hours at a time. We never pick up our Bibles and we never pray. And how can we not think we are in the day of Dan? Apostasy. And we wonder, like Dan, while we're oppressed, while we're overrun, while we don't have victory. Because we're not living in the full promise that God has called us to. To call on the Lion of Judah. To come help us fight our battles and live in the place God has called us to. But instead, it's say, God, that's too hard. It's too hard to turn TV off. It's too hard to turn Facebook off and Instagram. It's too hard to set time to pray and read my Bible. It's too hard to go to church more. It's too hard to go to Sunday night prayer meeting. God, there's just so many things that I want to do and need to do. I really like the northern land that is fertile, that's got big produce, that people live in rest and relaxation. God, that looks like a better place. Can I just have it easy 
and have a different kind of Christianity than one that crucifies flesh, that suffers in the name of Christ, that denies itself, that picks up its cross. I don't like that Christianity. I want the northern one. Can I go to that one? That's where we are in the American church. We are in a day of apostasy. And if we don't wake up, man, Jesus is coming. He said it to the starters. I know if you would just repent, come back. There are a few among you who are still faithful. But I'm coming like a thief. And I'm going to judge. There's going to be a reckoning in the house of God. And it's going to come judgment to the house of God first. And then to the world. Because we know better. And so I'm praying, church... I think what we're looking at now, in 1973, David Wilkerson, he prophesied, 1973 now, he prophesied of a great economic recession. He prophesied of multiple major earthquakes and tsunamis and all kinds of nature pains. He prophesied of teenage rebellion in the home where teenagers would be absent-minded from their families. Uh, he didn't say cell phones, perhaps, because we didn't have those back then, but he saw that there would be a disconnect. He saw there be rebellion in the home. He saw a flood of filth. He predicted HBO. He predicted pornographic magazines in our gas stations. He predicted all that because none of that was in the 70s. He predicted late night, X-rated movies, uh, all those things you could get paid per view now. That wasn't available in the 70s, but he predicted all of that. And one of the last things he predicted was a great persecution coming on the American church. And I'm thinking, well, if all of that's coming and come to pass, that's done. We're seeing that. We just had major earthquakes in California again. We've seen major disasters, more 100-year floods, more 100-year hurricanes, more uh, you know, 10-year floods and 10-year hurricanes. All those things are happening. Nature knows. The world knows. The devil knows. And what we're waiting for now, I believe, in the next coming years is uh, judicial harassment, he says, from the courts. He says the constant moder- uh, monitoring by the government that we'll lose our... IRS tax-exempt status and all types of pastor things that we have now, monitoring what we did on Facebook and the Internet. and uh, He even prophesied about ordained homosexual clergy, which we see now in one of the major denominations in the United States, the United Methodist Movement, barely right at the point of splitting over ordaining homosexual clergy. Uh, It's here. It's happened. And so we're at the very cusp of American church persecution. Uh, It will come slowly, but just like that, it bites the heel and it throws the rider off. It will be one vote of the Supreme Court. We've seen that in this last five, ten years. One vote by nine unelected officials can change the course of a nation. We're fighting for rights in our educational system for teachers that don't want to teach things that the government has said you must teach. We're fighting for rights in Christian adoption agencies who are being told you must allow homosexual adoption in your Christian adoption agency. We're fighting for Christian student organizations on secular campuses that say you cannot use our buildings anymore. We're fighting for Christian bakers and all types of wedding venues. Um, It's here. It's here. And so we need revival. We need revival. And... uh, Hope you will join us on Sunday nights as we pray for revival. I hope you will dedicate your home to be a true house of worship, a place of Bethel with the ladder of God coming down with no idols in it. And I I pray that we'll get back to our prayer closets and back to the Word and 
get on our knees and say, Lord, send a great awakening. Because I know in these last days there will be a, a great awakening for the remnant, the small number of true, devout Christians who will call Him Lord. They'll be moved in power and signs and wonders are going to happen again and mass conversion is going to happen again. But all of that is still going to happen. We're still going to come under persecution. There's no getting out of it. You just better get your home and ready in order. But I'm expecting great revival as well. And so, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Pray, pray, pray. Join us. Invite somebody to our revival in a couple of weeks. And uh, get somebody here. We need to get serious the day and hour which he's coming like a thief. And we need to know that our master is coming. Amen? Amen. Amen. Any questions on Dan before we close tonight? Any questions on Dan or comments on Dan? We good. Go home and study that. Take those notes and go through that. Amen. Would you stand with me tonight? Let's pray. Ask God just to be with us as these last days help us to just make a personal altar where we are. God, just renew us. Get us ready. Open my eye. Maybe we just kind of been sleepy saints. And God, just wake me up. Let's get some fire of the Holy Spirit in our bones. Father God, we just come to you tonight and say, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Come into our hearts. Be Lord of our lives. Shake us up by the Holy Spirit. Prepare us to be a saint in these last days, O God. We know our redemption is drawing nigh. Lord, that the roaring lion is seeking whom he may devour. But Lord, that there be no false idols in my heart or in my home. Let me not turn to man's material possession or pleasure or entertainment of this world that would woo me into sleep. But God, wake us up from slumber, O God. Lord, awaken us to be alive with Christ dead to sin. Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit and power for the greatest revival the world has ever seen. God, we know that day is coming for America. Lord, that You are going to pour out Your Spirit. But God, it's not going to come without persecution. Lord, we know that hour is coming, so God, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our children. Oh God, we pray for the salvation of our students, of our children who are going to face probably worse days than we ever have. God, for our grandchildren, Lord, save their soul, fill them with the Holy Spirit, empower them to be the greatest generation of Christians this nation has ever seen. God, help us to biblically equip them in the Word of God to know what God has a call on their life, to know who they are in Jesus Christ and return to the ancient ways, God, and walk in life in the promise of God. We expect great things ahead, Lord, but wake us up. Shake LaSalle, perish for Your glory while there is still time, O God, to preach freely this Gospel. Shake us up to take advantage of the day which we live. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. We enjoyed you here tonight. Thank you guys. God bless you. Give somebody a hug on the way out.